and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we will be talking about hardware peripherals, from D-pads to DDR pads, from the Game Boy camera to PSVR, and from arcade joysticks to whatever the hell Steel Battalion had. We'll be discussing the many ways that players interact with the games they love. To help me discuss why the Kinect was obviously a terrible idea is the man who somehow plays rock band drums louder than real drums, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Oh, doing okay, man. Um, someone got into my PlayStation account last night and set up two-factor authentication on their own phone. So, oh my, seriously? Yeah, this is not uh, this is not a bit. I've been dealing with that this morning, talking to Sony, and they're like, "Well, it could take one to two days for a specialist to uh, get on your case and make sure that uh, to remove the phone number." I'm like, "Really." Wow. Um, but I, I was able to change my password and they assured me that like they can't do anything with without that. Dude, but just, I can't really like log in other... without without them removing that two factor authentication. And this is like not yeah. the first time that's happened to me either with, with my PlayStation account. So Dude, just the other day I got an email that looked like super legit from Apple saying that my account had been charged. Uh and then t- it had like a link, like, you know, if you wanna uh contest this charge, hit this link. And dude, like I had just woken up, so I was like a little groggy. Dude, clicked it, typed in my information, got to the next, like I typed in my login and password, oh, no. got to the next screen, and I was like, wait a second. As <laughs> my brain like slowly w- woke up, I was like, what have I done? Yeah. So I like I checked the URL. I was like, URL looks okay. But then I went back and checked the, the email address I had got it from, and it was, dude, it was just like a garbled mess. And I was like, oh my God. Quick, get on Apple, change my password, change everything. Just start pulling out hard drives like in GoldenEye yeah. at the end there. He's just like, pull everything, shut it all down. Dude, it's, the world is scary, man. Yeah, I mean, it's, just- <laughs> it's really, really inconvenient. And uh, I guess you could say that uh, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on all directions uh, of my peripheral vision here. <laughs> oh, my, there it is. <laughs> I was like, I had crammed a bunch of like peripheral related jargon into my intro. I was like, I, I, I don't think I left Jared any room to make any puns in, in, uh, in his intro. But there you go. You snuck it in. Oh, are you a fan of puns, in the back Jared? of my head. I, you know, I try my best. And that voice you're hearing is our is our wonderful guest for today. He's the design supervisor for American Dad and host of the Aldrin Tendo Power Podcast. Please welcome Aldrin Corneo. Aldrin, how you doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me. Uh, of course. I, yeah. I hope you um, like puns because you're about to get double the uh, double the service there. <laughs> I've been feeling this is going to be a great podcast. I'm just going to be overwhelmed. This might be the last podcast that I do. We'll just keep them in your periphery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they keep the score here. Well, Aldrin, for people who uh, aren't familiar with you, what's your what's your background with video games? How did you get into uh, doing your own podcast about them and all that stuff? Well, I've been, I've been playing uh, Nintendo games since uh, the NES came out. Uh, so I've had that as a kid and I've just been, I've grown up with Nintendo my whole life. So it's kind of my primary go-to for, for all things gaming. Um, but I've also played like World of Warcraft on PC. Um, up until the PSP came out, I was kind of a Nintendo purist. Um, like my sister had uh, PlayStations growing up, so it was always in the house. But Nintendo was my my team. Uh, never got into the Genesis because you know in the war I chose a side. <laughs> and um, let's I, I I the most un Nintendo thing I have right now is uh, an Xbox One. The first one, the the before the S or the Scorpio that's the, coming out later. The One X. Are you planning right. on? Are you planning on making that little upgrade, or are you gonna 
hold out for I, whatever's next. I don't think so. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I kind of got burned by betting on the wrong horse this uh, this console cycle. <laughs> like all of my mm. friends are on PlayStation Four playing Overwatch, and I'm like, God damn it. Yeah, I have a I have yeah. a PC uh, a PC game a lot, and now with all the crossplay between PC and Microsoft games, I'm like, why would I ever want an Xbox? So I feel a little vindicated in having my PS4 as my my other gaming machine. Yeah, I mean, if I was wiser and uh, if money was no object, I'd probably swap over to the PlayStation Four side. But who's to say that that won't be the wrong horse this cycle? There are enough yeah, games on all platforms, I think, to keep everybody busy. So I don't. I don't think you should feel too bad. Plus, I'd like to keep my account secure and not deal with. <laughs> oh yeah, with that so. sales pitch I gave at the beginning. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, but, Aldrin, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm curious. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of American Dad. But I'm curious, what does a uh, design? Thank you. Su- oh, of course, yeah. What does a design supervisor do? Well, I am. Uh, so let's see. I, I maintain the design database. So uh, whenever artists or directors um, need a location from a previous show or whatever, they usually go to me, or one of my PAs, and and we. We bring them up. It's like, do you remember seeing a guy with a mustache and glasses? And I'm like, yeah, I think in season three, episode 17, about act two. (laughs) So, Hmm. yeah, uh, it's things like that. Do you really have like, do you have a knowledge like just in your head of of all the episodes like that? Yeah, I kind of have a photographic memory. It's it's weird. Um, So as long as I have the context of what the show is about, I can usually pull up like where in the show something shows up and, and things like that. It's a it's a weird stupid pet trick, but it's it's come in handy a lot in my job. Uh, and the other the other half of my job is that I basically um, make the assignments for the design artists on my show. So if we have uh, let's say we needed someone to do a caricature of I don't know like Hillary Clinton, um, I, I look at my uh, character artists and I make a decision as to who I think would best capture the essence of that person Hmm. um same thing with like props or uh backgrounds um i just basically try to manage everybody's time see what they're capable of doing quickly and then i also um act as a go between between like artists directors and the showrunner to make sure everyone's on the same page about stuff so it's a it's a process but it's it's fun it's fun working in animation it's my first animation job i've been working there for eight years thinking that it was just going to be like this temporary who knows how long the show will last you know um but it's been a good experience been fun it was kind of heartbreaking for my wife and i when uh american dad went off of netflix but i always i always enjoy hearing about yeah aldrin what's up with what, that? what people do i'm blaming you <laughs> No, you're my, yeah, you're my insider. I'm so glad I am not Netflix. So, <laughs> but I'll yeah, sure. I'll take I'll take the heat for that. Sorry, guys. So if you're angry <laughs> that uh, American Dad is no longer on Netflix, please email Aldrin at. No, it, it's all by design. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's cool. I like um I like hearing you know when when people have uh, jobs in the industry that I'm like not super familiar with. I like hearing what what they get to do with those. Yeah, with those things. It's, it's an interesting uh, in- industry we have going over here in Hollywood. I love it. It's uh, it's like a very complicated monster working on like on TV shows and stuff. But there's a there's a lot of room for people with a whole bunch of different interests and experiences. So that's why yeah, I like I like I like learning you know what people did to get into the spot that they're in and and how they're passionate about like that one area. That stuff's all really cool. It's also really fun because you know. Uh, not not to pun again, but by design, uh, working in animation, you you, tr- you work with a lot of nerds. So you know, 
pretty much everybody has toys lining their desks. Uh, we spend our lunch breaks playing board games sometimes, and there's plenty of people that I, I work with who like to talk Nintendo and stuff too. So it's almost like being in, in college or in high school without all of the homework, just, you know, regular work. <laughs> yeah. Living the dream, man. Growing old Indeed. can be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're really lucky. Now you, uh, you self-identify as a Nintendo fanboy and you said for a while you were a purist. Why, why, um, why Nintendo? Why are you, why are you so adamant about that, that company? Well, like I said, it, it, like was kind of the system the company that like raised me i guess uh <laughs> Aren't I, your parents supposed to do that yeah sure but you know they were working <laughs> so that's okay i i got to be raised by the plumber and uh you mean former plumber the monkey right he's he's officially not a plumber now he's an adventurer i right? guess <laughs> but uh <laughs> i actually i mean come to think of it i've never actually seen him do any plumbing ah uh, he's got pipes they're all over his games. I suppose. I mean, I live in a house with pipes. I'm not a plumber. <laughs> that's what a plumber does, right? They just go in and out of pipes. Yeah. That, that, that's all you need to be as a plumber. I mean, that's about the extent of my knowledge of what a plumber does. Sure. And taking mushrooms on the side. <laughs> yeah, taking mushrooms and climbing in pipes. Yeah. So um, uh, part of the, another reason is like I learned how to draw because of studying the artwork in Nintendo Power, having a Nintendo Power um, uh, subscription. It was kind of like, oh, you know, there's there's a magazine out there for me. Nintendo just, in general, feels kind of like the Disney of video games, so it's always been kind of family-friendly and acceptable. Like, I didn't have to worry about my parents being like, oh, these games are super violent, you know? Like, uh, yeah, the, the extent of stepping on someone's head, <laughs> kicking them around, or, you know, it was all just made up. Uh, so it, it always felt like the comfortable system to go to. And of course, growing up, I, I like playing, you know, like Mortal Kombat and, and shooters and whatnot. But Nintendo eventually caught caught up on on the cool factor after Sega Genesis proved them that they should. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, I think that's really all, all my fandoms for. You know, you wanna you wanna stick with your team for as long as you as as long as you can. But uh, you know, I also recognize the value in in PC gaming and. Uh, I think the PS Vita was an awesome system for as long as it lasted. May it rest um, in peace. I mean, it's still around, right? Technically, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, no, Nintendo's always been my go-to. Because I, I guess I have confidence in them, where some people don't. They seem to have definitely have, like stood the test of time, which has been great. Yeah, I mean, you talked about picking a, a console in that original console war. And you picked the right side in that case. I suppose so. I mean, like there was still you know, a lot of... Um, good going with the genesis if Gen if genesis hadn't stepped in nintendo wouldn't have had to uh step up their game yeah so yeah you know the, <laughs> things happen for a reason whatever miyamoto does <laughs> I, I was trying to make a god analogy and i didn't want to make him sound like god anyway moving on <laughs> do you happen to get your hands on the uh snes classic i have i have not uh i don't have an nes classic but i'm i'm, I'm okay with that uh, the SNES Classic pre-order thing kind of burned me, but Steve, uh, are you just going to work that into out. every podcast now? <laughs> hey, I mean, he's a he's a self-proclaimed Nintendo fanboy. Mm. It's a totally reasonable question. I'm not. Oh, it's I'm absolutely not bragging. Reasonable. I just got my pre-order in. <laughs> oh, just... you are so lucky. <laughs> See, I'm I'm planning on uh, taking that day off and possibly camping out at a Toys R Us because they said yeah, they're the no, doing pre-orders. Yeah, no pre-orders at Toys R Us. We'll see. I might have to bring a samurai sword in case uh, people try to cut in front of me or whatever. <laughs> you cut in front of me, I cut you. Exactly. <laughs> no refunds. 
So what, what prompted you to start your podcast, Alder Nintendo Power Podcast? It was mostly to fill a void. Um, like, my Wednesday nights used to be about um, uh, going to the Meltdown show uh, with Jonah Ray and Kumail. Mm-hmm. And I, I would do that weekly. And they ended it late last year. So my, my Wednesday nights started freeing up. And then a couple of my friends who also went with me weekly, uh, who are now my, my team over at Alder Nintendo Power, uh, decided that it would be a fun thing to just kind of talk about things I'm passionate about, why I like Nintendo, um, and and just kind of getting to know other people through that same, you know, like, uh, I, I think Kyle and and Matthew over at, um, you know, This Is Rad put it best where they were like, we want to talk about stuff in a positive light. Like, there's so much negativity in the world right mm-hmm. now. Why not make it cool to like things again? Yeah. And I, I've always felt like Nintendo has always been kind of the butt of the joke. Uh, in terms of this console war, quote unquote. Uh, so you know, I care enough about it. Like, I just wanted to hear what other people who care about Nintendo had to say on the matter too. I, I feel like right now Nintendo is like Norway in the console war. Like they're not. Yeah. <laughs> they just kind of do their own thing, and and uh, they don't really Which like actually, care too much about what the other companies are doing. Right, and that works a lot to their benefit, especially in the uh, in the Wii days where. Uh, Microsoft and Sony were basically like, well, we've got the main demographic. And Nintendo was like, you can keep the main demographic. We'll go ahead and work on everyone else outside that demographic. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to work. I mean, you had like old folks' homes with Wii's in them and like yeah. people at Thanksgiving playing Wii bowling together. Like mm-hmm. that's that's the kind of thing that I like. Uh, you know, Nintendo's philosophy of kind of like togetherness. Like if you think about co-op gaming from in the same room, you can't really think of too many examples from uh, Sony or from Microsoft, but you can count like a bajillion different games that you can play together on Nintendo mm-hmm. consoles. And it's always been that way. Now, in doing your podcast, are there any uh, highlights, moments that like stick out in your mind as like really positive experiences that came specifically because you decided to start doing your podcast? Oh yeah. I mean like every episode is just a fun, uh, just a fun time. We got Natalie Hazen and Kyle Clark from this is rad. Uh, I feel like I'm plugging This Is Rad a little too much. Oh, we we do it every episode. We love those guys. <laughs> well, that's how I know you guys. So, uh, <laughs> yes, good things come from that podcast. Listen to it. When when the Nintendo Switch launched, uh, I set aside some time to just have friends over, and we, we basically played the Nintendo Switch live as an audio. No, There was no visual recorded for it whatsoever. It's just us geeking out over playing like 1-2 Switch and Legend of Zelda on day one. And then most recently, I uh, I interviewed one of the director friends of mine from Family Guy. Uh, his name's Greg Colton. Uh, he is a big collector of retro games, and he owns like a ton of pinball machines. Oh, and, I love uh, pinball. That was yeah, yeah. And he he kind of gave us like an hour long tour of his pad before we started recording. It was that was fun times too. Very cool. Now before we jump into our topic, which is gaming peripherals. There's one game that you put on the list that I'm curious to hear your opinion on, and that's Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battles. How are you, how are you enjoying that game? Oh, yeah, dude. Okay, so th- what's funny about that game is when, when the imagery for that leaked a couple months ago, uh, the internet lost its mind, and we're basically like, what is this shovelware garbage? <laughs> and then, and then uh, at E3, when they announced that it was essentially a Mario-style XCOM game, mm-hmm. people lost their mind again and were like, 
oh, an XCOM type game. I believe I shall be purchasing this yeah, game. Yeah, <laughs> it seemed to flip really quickly once people learned what the gameplay was like. And you know, that description is right on the money. Like, uh, I've been describing it as kind of like if you've ever played uh, Dungeons and Dragons 4th edition, it's like that, except replace all of the warriors and magicians with Mario and, and Rabbids. It's, it works a lot better than you would think. And it's just one of those games where you're like, I'm going to play for one more round, then I'm going to go to bed. And then you turn around, it's 4 a.m., and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. I've, now, how I'm sorry. Is, can I curse on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Fucking A. <laughs> how is the Rabbids implementation in it? Because it was, I mean, it was made by essentially that company, the Rabbids Correct. company, right? Yeah. So Ubisoft uh, was able to shoehorn in their version of Minions um, because it's basically their fault that they, they're mashed up into the Nintendo universe or uh, more specifically the Mushroom Kingdom. Um, and so you basically have these cosplaying rabbits who are your allies, and you can put them on your team. Uh, but basically all the villains are just rabbits. So, like, if you hate rabbits, you can kill these rabbits. You just have to side with a couple of them. But the they're there for comic relief. The humor factor in this fits so well with the Mario Kingdom. Like, m- m- better than you would imagine. I mean, I saw a gif of but- Luigi dabbing, so I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, I still haven't uh, witnessed Luigi dabbing. Uh, it must be a special move I haven't unlocked yet. But um, yeah, it's it's for a strategy tactics game. Um, I mean, I haven't felt this way about a Mario mashup game since Super Mario RPG on Super Nintendo. Ooh. Like, it's interesting to see them do different things with a Mario franchise, especially considering it wasn't Mar- uh, it wasn't Nintendo themselves who made this. So you're saying the right words because Super Mario RPG was like might be one of my favorite RPGs of all time. Oh, yeah. Part of the reason I'm excited to get my SNES Classic in that I got the pre-order <laughs> on. <laughs> oh, are you more excited for that than for uh, Star Fox 2? Uh, I was never a huge Star Fox fan. I mean, I'm excited to give the second one a try. I do have, I mean, I've got fond memories of playing the original Star Fox. Sure. On the Super Nintendo that was owned by the woman who taught my dad Japanese. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a true story. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a thing that happened <laughs> but yeah it's i mean star fox 2 I'm, yeah i'm excited to give it a try just to see out of curiosity like why did it never actually hit the market right right well i think it, that's partly because of uh how close it was to the n64's launch and miyamoto wanting to not tarnish what 3d what the vision of 3d was going to be when the n64 mm. launched so it was kind of like well let's let's just scrap this and and put whatever technology we can into the upcoming Star Fox 64. That's so funny because then the question is why ever release the game, right? Because like graphics have only gotten better since then. So why now right. is it like let's release Star Fox 2 so people can see how shitty the graphics were back then? Well, I don't even know if it was like because I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say it's shitty. Uh, I, w- I mean, it's old, it's dated. And as far as a Super Nintendo game goes, like the first Star Fox was, was game breaking because they were using polygons and stuff. Mm-hmm. But to like basically take that and just kind of plus it up. Um, I guess didn't really add anything, but now as fan service, they they're basically letting you see a game that you never thought would see the light of day outside of just emulators. Uh, it's kind of like with when they re-released um, Super Mario Brothers two, the Japanese version as the lost levels. Mm-hmm. How it's like, hey, now finally Americans get to see why we didn't, um, why why Nintendo thought this game would be too hard for us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, let's jump into our topic for today, which 
as I've said. It's a fun topic. I'm glad you guys uh, brought me on for this. Yeah, gaming peripherals. When uh, we learned that you were, <laughs> some, for some reason, agreeing to be on our show, <laughs> we uh, we were kind of throwing around some ideas of like, you know, what would what would be good to talk to someone who's, you know, such a big Nintendo fan about. And uh, gaming peripherals just seemed like the right fit because Nintendo has, has built an entire empire on this idea of sort of crazy peripherals for their consoles. At least recently, that seems to sort of be oh, the dude, trend. From the beginning, I mean, the fact that in order to con uh, retailers into stocking the Nintendo after the, the disaster that was like the Atari you know, era, um, they they convinced retailers that it was a toy because it would get packed in with a light gun and a robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that the the whole periphery thing has always been kind of working in Nintendo's favor, I think. Typically, we start out talking a little bit about the history, so we'll get we'll get more into that in a little bit. But Jared, did you want to uh, enlighten us on where peripherals in video games started? Yeah, I mean, I think we should give people a little bit of context to what peripherals are exactly, because uh, I know a lot of people aren't as familiar with that term. Um, some some of our listeners might not know what a, a peripheral is. So, what if what if we define it first? Like, what what are what is a peripheral? Webster's Dictionary defines peripheral. <laughs> we've done, I've made we've that, done joke. that joke before. <laughs> we've done that joke before. <laughs> Simpsons did it, but yeah, like I, I you know, I, I was talking to people about this upcoming podcast, and people are like, "Oh, what do you mean by peripherals?" So, I, I mean, before we dive into the history, I think we should maybe put a, a finger on what is a peripheral. Um, I think you could sort of define just the 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 standard controllers that come with most consoles as peripherals. But I don't know that that's necessarily super interesting to talk about. So I think most of our discussion, and you guys can correct me if you feel otherwise, but I think most of our discussion is going to center around sort of the extras that go into the way that people play their games. The things like Mm -hmm. light guns and things like power gloves and things like dance pads and stuff like that. Those things that don't typically come standard with your console and are, are maybe only for a handful of experiences... Um, outside of the, the, the normal game. And they're usually but. like, you know, alternative controllers for a very specific experience. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that um, is not really a controller in some way. I mean, we'll get into some other things that kind of push that definition of a peripheral, but for the most part, it gives you like a different way to interact with the game. At least, I, at least the way I think we're going to spend most of our time discussing it, because there are other things too, like, um, like third-party controllers for consoles i would i would call those peripherals you know and something interesting for us to discuss in this episode but at the end of the day they're just controllers but i think there's something interesting about a third party making products for interacting with you know your your home console or your computer or whatever you're playing on i think a a good example of a more recent peripheral type experience uh is this games to life thing that uh, skylanders kind of started and uh, i mean you see them now with like Lego, there's a Lego version. There's a Disney one. Not um, anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know you're right. But uh, yeah, I mean that that for sure is a third party peripheral experience that isn't even really control based. It it kind of is its own thing. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it doesn't even necessarily have to be the way you interact with your console. And we'll get into. I mean, we'll definitely get into some of that crazy stuff. But for sure, for sure. Jared, let's hop in our time machine and go way back. Oh, cool. Can I do a sound effect for that? That was awesome. No, don't do it. I'm gonna, okay, well. 
There, we there go. you go. <laughs> well, well, you know, game-breaking features, uh, favorite historical example that comes up. We mentioned this in episodes 3 and 10. A game that came out in 1962 called Space War! Exclamation point. Exclamation yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it was made by... Wow, this is, this predates Star Wars. Yeah, it's uh, it was very interesting. Uh, we, we've kind of gone into that a little bit and the effect of the uh, Cold War that kind of had on games at the time, but... Uh, this wow. game was made by uh, Steve Russell for the DEC PDP-1 at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And, uh, of course, it featured the two ships orbiting a star attempting to shoot each other down. So it's a multiplayer game. You're shooting at each other. Uh, the game was controlled by using the switches on the front of the computer. And each player controlled four of the switches. But uh, be- we talked about this in um, one of our recent episodes. That was the balance episode. Yeah. Was, um, if you were using... like, Because it used to be like imbalanced if you had to stand off to the side yeah like player two had to like stand off to the side and they had kind of a crappy view of it so they introduced game pads to it and the game pads themselves introduced a silence button uh for firing your rocket so your opponent couldn't tell when you were attacking (laughs) yeah it was it was you know they're changing up the meta bringing in bringing in peripherals to to expand the experience of that game um, after that, 10 years later, Magnavox Odyssey console, uh, which was uh, invented by Ralph Bayer and licensed by Magnavox, is shipped with several games, including Table Tennis, which is sim- similar to Pong, uh, kind of a ripoff of the Atari game, included two controllers, which were small boxes that had two knobs on opposite sides of another. Knobs were labeled horizontal and vertical. Horizontal English and vertical? I don't know what that yeah, means. So, so imagine, I don't know, that's hard to describe. If you, if you Top spin? If you make... Yeah, essentially it's like topspin. But yeah, if you, if you imagine like making C's with your hands and then touching your fingers together, that's about how big the the controller for the Magnavox Odyssey was. Okay. And on either side of there, there were knobs. On one side, it was just like a single knob. That's the side that's the vertical control. On the other side, the horizontal slash English control was actually like two knobs kind of stacked one on top of the other. Why English? Um, um I think, so I... I have not ever played a Magnavox Odyssey. I believe for games like the table tennis game, you could kind of put a spin on the ball when your paddle would hit it. Oh, physics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Legit real-world physics, yes. I, I believe it was for for that kind of interaction with the game. Again, if, if someone listening knows the, the real answer to that, please send that along because... I didn't do a lot of research into what the English knob was, but I think that's what it was for. Yeah, I mean, this is like 15 years before I was born, so I don't know. Um, the Shooting Gallery was another game that we released later for that console. It included four games and the uh, very first commercial light gun. So, you know, the light gun that Nintendo kind of popularized with their orange and gray duck hunt pack-in game. The Zapper. The Zapper. Was that its official name? Like, the Zapper? Yeah. Was, yeah. Yep. Oh, nice. Also. Also, it was originally uh, gray and I and white, I believe. Yeah, and the old it wasn't gray until guns. later that it turned orange. See, this is why we have you here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, so, you're talking a little bit about how Nintendo packaged in that gun as a way to sell their their console as a toy. With the Magnavox right. Odyssey, it actually shipped with a bunch of sort of board game related stuff, like Monopoly money and um, oh. I think some dice and some uh, like. A roulette wheel. No, I don't know if they went that <laughs> far, but I think it had like poker chips. Like, I think some of the games were kind of board game related. Huh, sure. Um, but they packaged these things in to in order to get the price of the console up to one hundred dollars. It was like sort of oh. this this value add. And they were trying to hit this price point for the console. 
So I don't know. Is that a? I mean, is is that a peripheral? <laughs> Are poker chips video game peripherals? <laughs> I mean, I suppose anything that you add on that you don't need could be considered a, a peripheral. I mean, you can clearly see sort of at the dawn of uh, home video gaming, they were kind of struggling to, you know, to figure out what it what it is. What is this thing? When when you're not having to stand at an arcade cabinet, you know, what what can we do that's unique to the home experience? Well, we can have you know people exchange paper money and stuff like that it's it's kind of cool man i i I think about games like uh the the jackbox party pack of like getting that kind of inventive sort of oh yeah all in the same room kind of experience going on using things that you can really only kind of do in that home experience yeah that was the last time i really thought that bringing outside controllers into a a game experience was was done super well i was just like wow this is such a good idea everybody has a phone like this is this is amazing like why didn't i think of this it was yeah Yeah. genius there's actually even uh with just dance i think some of the more recent versions of just dance in lieu of a wii mote uh to use to track your motion you can use your device now because they know that most cell phones these days have accelerometers. Hmm. So yeah, that, yeah. I mean, it's 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 interesting when people like when when companies take what they know you already own and then use that to your advantage for your games. It's 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 pretty smart. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can get into Nintendo Switch's uh, VoIP solution, their voice solution. <laughs> oh jeez, so, solutions a little uh, the, a little harsh. That's the nightmare <laughs> scenario of what we're talking about. It's okay. Discord still exists. So. <laughs> That's true. Now, what what games, like, what's the earliest game you guys can remember sort of interacting with a peripheral that wasn't just the packed-in controller? Aldrin, I'll throw it to you first. What what was the first time you remember going like, oh, this is like an interesting new way to play a video game? Well, let's see. Uh, would you consider the Game Genie a peripheral? I, I think so. Yeah, and see, this might be getting into kind of what we were going over earlier. Is it might be a little hard to define, like, what is a peripheral sure. necessarily but yeah i mean I, like, I think for the purposes of this we could talk about game genie a little bit what was it yeah, what was game I, genie so game genie was this add-on thing that you could add to your nintendo cartridges which kind of was kind of like hacking light it it had um it had a source book with with codes that you would enter into specific games that would allow you to kind of rewrite the coding of the game so mario could jump three times as high or you could play the game in slow motion and uh it just basically let you um mess with the the guts of a game it was like game and, it was like the old school game shark correct it was like that or action replay which uh, for, for for the most part people consider things like that cheating but i've all i never really used it to cheat my way through a game i would usually use it to extend the life of games i'd already beaten um to just kind of mess around with um, now was the game genie was that that was for nes correct and they they had a super nintendo one but that one was available uh, yeah NES. i I, f- I seem to recall that there was there was some kind of legal battle or issue that may have caused them to stop producing game genies so the nes one was the one that i knew the best okay i, I don't know so how did how did it handle being able to close that the the door on the front of it Aha, it did not. Okay, good. <laughs> they were like, in fact, it was it was designed in such a way that it kind of lengthened your card so you couldn't um, insert it and push down. And so your your cartridges would stick out about halfway, yet miraculously they would still work in your console. Mm-hmm. Um, it also gave you this cringy, like, crunching noise when you would attach them to your cartridges. Dude, like, it I sounded remember like you were, just like full of sand. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. It, sound, it just felt like you were just destroying your games, but somehow they were working. And then for a while, I wasn't even using my Game Genie to cheat anymore. It was the only way that uh, my Nintendo could read the connection between the cartridges anymore. Because uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know how like you know everybody knows to blow into their Nintendo cartridges to try to get them to work, mm. or people will do that thing where they like put it in until there's like a quarter of an inch left and then slam it in yep. instead of just pushing yep. it down. I used to lick inside but, my game cartridges ugh. to get them to work. Gross. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, I, was yeah. a, I was a kid. Leave me alone. I'm just, I'm just here telling you what happened in my childhood. I would lick Whatever inside works, the cartridge works. to get the dust off of it. What's so wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, well, that's how the French do it. It was probably the least disgusting thing I was doing at that age. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, um, the Game Genie was one of my first kind of peripheral experiences and the uh, I, I was an owner of the of the power glove. You were the kid that I was super jealous of. Oh, it's so from, bad. from the commercials. I, I just like <laughs> I just wanted one. I was like, I don't even know what this does. I don't know what I'm gonna use it for, but man. Oh, that, don't worry, dude. I own one, I still didn't know what it did. I don't think anybody figured out a use of that thing. But like, that was like used what, it that's like what eighties like, mm. movies promised you video games was gonna be. So hell yeah, you yeah. wanted it. Yeah. And and here we are now with things like the uh Oculus Touch and the Vive controllers and even even just like Wii Motion, you know, like I feel like the the uh, Power Glove kind of put it into the public eye, and and from then on, people were just improving on that technology. Yeah. So I think my first experience with this thing was the Power Pad with the uh, the track and field game. What was it called? Oh, you must have been a good long jumper. Yeah, no, I wasn't. Dude, you just was, hijacked like, my, you hijacked my show notes. That was my, yeah, that well, was my first experience too that I could really yeah. Think of. Outside of outside of the light gun, because the light gun came with my Nintendo, so I didn't really consider that a peripheral, really. Yeah. Mm, mm. But yeah, the power pad. Go for it, Jared. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just no. I just I played that track and field game, and then I figured out they were trying to trick me into exercising. And I was like, no, nah, screw that. Uh, went back. <laughs> hey, to Nintendo's the still guide. keeping that up with the Wii Fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, that's definitely like the earliest thing. And then I I, I kind of messed with. I didn't have one, but I was super interested in the Virtual Boy. When that came out, um, and then I, I used one like in a Target, and I was like, "This is this is terrible." I, I, why, why would anyone I want this? I liked the Virtual Boy. <laughs> uh, it had it had its uses, I guess, but um, hey, it really taught you how to lean in. And then I yeah. think maybe my favorite one was the um, oh, now I'm blanking on the name the like the big bazooka thing for the SNES. The, oh, uh, the um, the Super Shot or Super Scope Six. Super Scope, yes. yeah. And I played, uh, I played the shit out of that with like Armored Core and those games, and that was a lot of fun. So I didn't own a Rob the Robot, but my cousin did, and so I have been witness to it actually working for the one game that it was designed for. I don't think I'm familiar with Rob the Robot. Okay, so Rob the Robot is this. Uh, it kind of looks like Johnny Five from Short Circuit, mm-hmm. and it was meant to be your video game companion, and it for for one very specific game called Gyromite, where Player one controlled the professor who would walk around, and then player two would control a series of pistons that would either block or, or uh, open up pathways for the guy. So if you didn't have a friend, you'd plug in your Rob Robot and give and, and you would set up this like uh, contraption around him where he would play as player two. And the way it did that was he would pick up a top and put it in a spinner. And then while that one was spinning, he would pick up a spun top from the other side, drop it onto these bases so that the weight of dropping this top would push a button. 
Wait, this, this is and happening like physically, like in it's physically happening. What? The, the the robot is watching you play the game. This is amazing. And based on like prompts that it can read somehow, it would know that you need this gate to open. So it would take its arm, grab a top that was spinning, and then drop it on the A button. And then it would pick up the one that was on the B button and start spinning that. So it was like this. It it sounds better in theory than it was in real life because you basically had to wait for two and a half minutes. <laughs> for this thing to open a gate for you for levels that I think were timed, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, as a novelty, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. I'm going to have to look uh, up a video of that. Cause that sounds yeah. crazy. Yeah. Now, this, yeah, now I mean, we're, we're talking about peripherals as ways to interact with the games we're playing, but this sounds like a peripheral that interacted with the game for you. Like <laughs> itself. Right. right. <laughs> and then, and then it, when you started beating it, it would just grab your controller and smash it. Yeah. We, we talked, <laughs> yes. when we had Mary on the show, we talked a little bit about sort of the future of video game design with AI, but we never really considered the next step, which is the AI then playing the games for you. <laughs> That's a future I think we're all looking forward to. Yeah. When, we're, when they're not just designing our games, but then they're playing the games for us. <laughs> It's funny you should bring that up because that's technically what the Amiibo do in Super Smash Brothers. Well, let's jump really? into Amiibos because that's I think that's a, a big part of this discussion because I think Nintendo has found at least moderate success with the Amiibos where other companies kind of seem to be struggling a which little is, bit. Which is interesting because one of the uh, one of the criticisms that Nintendo was getting with Amiibo was that it never really felt like you needed them, which uh is kind of like a pro and a con because no one really feel no one really wants to feel like you need this to experience mm -hmm. something but if you look at something as like a as like a option it's it's more tolerable i suppose and a lot of people kind of knock on nintendo because these amiibo basically feel like physical dlc like oh you can't unlock this costume for legend of zelda unless you own a 12 dollar piece of plastic not a lot of people are into that, but for me, who would have bought that $12 piece of plastic anyway, I'm like, oh, a treat. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So Amiibos are like these little figurines that Nintendo sells that have like little RF, they're RFID chips, right? Correct. Yeah. And then you just put them on this like little platform that's connected to your console and it'll usually like unlock something in a game that you're playing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think and more can, recently, can you use like the same Amiibo across different games? Is that? You can. Okay. So the whatever Nintendo console you're using reads it as the character it is. So uh, it's not like a, not for most things, like a, a specific statue unlocks a specific thing, like a Mario statue, no matter what kind it is, it could be a, the, the eight bit classic version of the Amiibo I love one, that one. The I just love Mario the part one. one. Yeah. Or the smash brothers one, they all read as a Mario character, but gotcha if you're using it in the specific game that it was meant for, it does different things. So it has this like back and forth. I don't have an amiibo, but by all accounts, most people seem to be happy with like the quality of just the figures themselves. Like yeah, I know people who well just collect done. them that just to collect them. I mean, what the way they capitalized on it for smash brothers was, uh, they're basically live versions of the trophies that you get when you beat the game. Like you get that little virtual statue of Ness now you can actually physically have it with you and it does stuff in your game, which is a nice bonus. That's cool. And and so why I brought it up was with Smash Brothers, the intention for them was you you would take let's say you took a Pikachu amiibo and you play as Pikachu in the game. What you would do is you'd scan the Pikachu and supposedly the the chip would analyze the way you play a character. 
and then it would constantly learn from it and level up so that your Pikachu statue starts at level zero and can get up to level 50, having learned how you play a character and then just kind of adjusting. So then it's basically getting smarter. Like there's a built-in AI in the, in the chip in the statue. And so then I could go and take that Pikachu statue, take it to my friend's house who were playing Smash Brothers on their Wii U and scan it in. And it would be like a facsimile of like, if I were to be playing as Pikachu, this is what it would be like. Hmm. And then Pikachu and, sends all your data to the NSA. <laughs> yeah, right. So that they know that I want more Pikachu. Yeah, this, this, um, the NSA is just at work and they're like, this dude's a little bit too much into Pikachu. Let's <laughs> keep an eye on him. <laughs> yeah. No uh, one should be no such this thing as into being a too single much Nintendo Pikachu. character. This is kind of weird. <laughs> so, so yeah, it essentially acted as like... Uh, a, a, ver- a ghost version of you and it also was a an interesting way to kind of like practice against yourself but it other than that it didn't really do anything so the best example i can have is one time i went over to a friend's house we all decided to bring one or two amiibo each and we we scanned them in and s- tried to see if we could you know as human beings beat these robots uh robots kept winning because they have been watching us play that's crazy that's like uh, here's my here's here's how I'm gonna shoehorn Dota two into this conversation. Uh, Valve recently started doing that with their AI. They took all this data, really from so when they first released this thing during the international, they only collected like two weeks worth of like player data, just from all over the world. Uh, a lot of pro players just collecting raw data, and then they built these AI bots and they they challenged these professional players who play for their jobs to to try to beat these bots, and no one was able to do it. They're actually just challenging them to kill the bot, and wow. no one was able to do it. I think recently, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, someone actually got a kill on the bot, but I don't think anyone's been able to win a game against it. And that's just by you know compiling data of like how pe- other people yeah. are playing the game. Now, that that's, was that stuff's crazy. That was like funded by elon musk and i remember it was like around the time that that news was coming out about the uh dota ai was also around the same time that (laughs) elon was like shut this shit down yeah when he was like we uh maybe shouldn't be pursuing ai quite so aggressively (laughs) right (laughs) we can't even elon uh, is 100 time traveler from the future he's just trying to warn us (laughs) that was too late the timing for that stuff was really funny because i remember when all that all of that came out um, so we talked a little bit about the Amiibos as sort of being a success story for Nintendo. Nintendo's had sort of like, I don't know if I would call it rocky because I think it's all part of Nintendo's like big grand plan, but they've had a lot of hits and misses over the years. I feel like they're just not afraid to try new things. Like as, yeah. as much as like you would think of a Japanese company being a, more conservative in their business practices, I mean, they they they've been like on the forefront of just the craziest shit that's come out for video games. It's it's yeah. really strange, man. How like they seem to kind of go back and forth. Like they'll they'll release the the Wii, and everybody and their grandmother will go out and buy it. And I I'm like right. I'm not even joking. Like, uh, I was just talking to my wife's aunt this weekend, and she was saying that she had a Wii, and that like blew my mind because she does not seem like she's in sort of like Nintendo's wheelhouse but she bought one for the sports and for the fitness stuff and they like they nailed it with that but then you get something like the wii u Mm -hmm. with the uh sort of like tablet which i for the purposes of this i guess i'll define as a peripheral because i don't know if you had to have the tablet for all the games 
I don't know. See, that's part of the thing. Is like yeah. that, that messaging got kind of confused with the Wii U, and and really that is where they're. Uh, that's that's where they kind of messed up was the messaging, um, because no one there there were a lot of people who were not clear that whether or not the Wii U was the tablet itself and it would work on your regular Wii. Um, there were people who didn't realize that the Wii U was an actually an HD console, mm-hmm. um, and. And yeah, I mean, it really did feel like they were just trying to capitalize on this idea of it, like, oh, you guys like iPads? We can do that. That's easy. Except it didn't feel like tech. It felt kind of like a toy, which most Nintendo things do. To say that they're rocky is fair, because um, I, I do think that for everything they innovate on, you, you can see that the other companies pay attention. Because, I mean, the Wiimote initially... It, it drew a big audience because motion was an easy thing to understand. The, the mm-hmm. way the shape of the Wii remote was very simple. It was like one main button comes some su- sub buttons, but everyone knew how to use a remote Yeah, like control. to throw a bowling ball, you throw it like a bowling ball and yeah, let go of the swing trigger. It. Yeah. And, and the fact that they were able to make that work like 90% of the time is is a testament to their technology. I don't I mean, think like, that that would have been as popular as it was if they didn't in, pack in Wii Sports. Like that was just oh, like correct. a genius move on their part. Just like here Absolutely. it is, everybody knows how to do this stuff. Like go at it. Yeah, yeah, and and I think even though you know in hindsight it may have felt like a misstep, I think uh, it kind of helped them learn a lot about you know what to do and what not to do. Do you guys remember Monster Rancher? Yes, Monster Rancher. Yeah. That, that game yeah. is crazy too and like uh, here we go again like is this really con- I don't know if you consider this a peripheral because Monster Rancher you didn't really have a like a third party or like a outside controller or anything but what that game was is kind of like it's like a fighting game and you would collect these monsters to, to fight each other but the way that you, you could collect monsters was by you you'd boot up the game in your PlayStation 1 your original PlayStation load it into the RAM whatever start playing it and then you took the game out and then you put in a music CD, or I think any kind of CD, really. And depending on what CD it was, you would get a different monster from it. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that like is you could, cool. you could even put in a Christmas album. And some of those Christmas albums, you would get, you would get a monster type of Santa. So it was like this huh. really weird, like meta thing that they were doing. And uh, I remember that being kind of insane. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that was always fun to you know figure out which one of your CDs in your collection would get you like the badass dragon or whatever you were looking for. And then, yeah, they had those sort of like built in specific ones where it's like, if you've got Metallica's black album that, uh, you know, that gives you a very specific monster in the game. That's only available for that one. (laughs) That's really cool. Um, if you put in Metallica, they just send you a cease and desist. Stop using the monster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Lars comes over to your house and punches you in the face. <laughs> but uh, uh, there was there was a 3DS game called Pokemon Mystery Dungeon Gates to Infinity that kind of had no, this, it just rolls off the tongue uh, a similar thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but the, the idea was that um, it would use the 3D cameras on the outside of the device, so you could look around your actual environment for for rings and for circles, and if you line them up uh, with the camera it would turn into a portal that would generate a random dungeon for you. So you feel like you were going into your coffee mug or going into what uh, your your dartboard would look like if it was a level. It's That's kind of just weird. Like I, I like the idea of what you were saying of like, oh, these everyday CDs that I already have on hand will make my experience uh, interesting. That's just really cool. Now, I kind of wanted to get back to Nintendo a little bit because I think the way that they've sort of managed their, they've run their their business you know like 
they got the Nintendo light gun for the NES, which I loved. And then they've got the power mm-hmm. glove, which is universally hated. They've got the Wii. Oh, you know what? Since you mentioned the zapper, the, the light gun, um, I think it's interesting to, to, do you know how those work? There's like the flash on your screen, right? Like everything's black except the duck and the, and right, the light right. gun is just sensing if you're pointing it at the light. Yeah. Like uh, they, it was just really interesting that whoever designed the, the thing were using the, the light gun was the receiver and not the other way around. Cause usually you'd, you'd imagine the TV being the thing that needs to receive yeah. the information. Well, I mean, it makes sense. You're holding a gun. So you think the gun is, is the thing shooting something right. at your television and not receiving something from your television. I remember thinking about how that thing worked even as a kid. And you know, I, it was I magic. No I mean, when I was, when I was yeah, a kid, it was like, what a wizard did it. <laughs> yeah. And all it was, was it was looking for a split second for a white square. Mm-hmm. And if the white square was in the right place, you hit the duck. If not, you didn't. And like, you don't even, you don't even consider it. We all play duck hunt and we're like, why does the screen turn black for a second? That's weird, but you'd never thought much about it. But it turned out that that was the actual design of the game. Now, could you just point your gun at a light bulb and pull the trigger and have it hit? That's interesting. That's maybe. I don't know. Um, I mean, actually, I, I had heard that with the uh, the Wii, you know how the uh, motion sensor bar that you put underneath your TV, uh, they had to really work that out because um, I guess the, the Wiimotes can read something as small as a candle flame or an incandescent light as as a source of, of triangulation. Hmm. So they really had to like work the the sensor bar to be the only thing that the Wii can read, but hmm, I mean that's beside the point. I think I think it is interesting how peripherals are kind of like this. We got to take the extra step to make this thing you don't need work as well as possible. And you're like, there's a lot of technology that goes into these things, even if they're just one offs or one shots yeah. that no one gives a shit about afterwards. And this was kind of getting to the point that I was trying to make, which is I feel like with these peripherals. Like everything has to kind of line up perfectly in order to make them work. Uh, right. If, and if they don't work, it j- the whole thing falls apart, right? So you look at something yeah. like the Wii U, which, I mean, in that case, it might have been poor messaging and marketing. But when that thing doesn't work, when that uh, tablet doesn't make sense, that whole console falls apart. The, right. They, which I think happened in the hindsight of it in the, uh, at the, the twilight year of the Wii U. But I also think that because the Wii U existed, it allowed for the Switch to become something. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and the Switch is great. That's another Nintendo success story where I think they, they messaged it correctly. And when it came out, it, it for the most part, works Worked. right out of the box. Yeah. And, um, and you can easily grasp why being able to dock it and undock it and take the controllers off, you know, off the sides of it, all of those things. You can easily understand why that's all there. You don't have to like theory craft, like, well, what you know, what are the potentials of these things? No, like you, you play a game. It's like I want to, I want to play Zelda on the toilet. Boom, you're playing Zelda on the <laughs> toilet. You don't have to like think about how to make that happen. It just happens. And I feel like that was the dream since the Game Boy was in what was was a thing. Like, um, you you always knew that if you played a, a handheld version of a game that's on a console, that you were getting the B minus version. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but now now the switch makes it so that you are getting the exact same experience. There isn't even like frame rate issues really. It's whatever you see on the TV is what you'll see when you have it on the go. And I think that's that's so great. Because I mean I mean I've I have friends who are like, Man, I wish that Horizon Zero Dawn was on the Switch mm-hmm. or any game for that matter. If if you're playing a great game on your PlayStation 4, or your Xbox One, what better way than to just 
be able to take it with you. Yeah. But I just started I just started Destiny 2 and there's a oh. lot of little sort Ugh. of bite-sized things that you can do in that game like oh I just want to run uh you know I just want to run a uh, what do they call them a sparrow race. Well, I don't I actually no, don't know no if they have sparrow races in that one. Um they have <laughs> this like new terminology for the second game. I'm like still trying to learn it all, but I think they're called adventures. They've got like little adventures you can do and they're whatever like 10 Oh, this game has adventures now? <laughs> <laughs> they're they're like 10 15 minute experiences, um little missions you can do. But if you could take uh-huh. that on the go with you, like that would be the yeah. ideal way to to play that stuff. Like I'm just going to go on a patrol or I'm going to go do this adventure real quick. And, uh, I would, you know, that's something I would love to do in the context of pooping on the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) I had the opposite growing up. I had a a super Game Boy. I think that's what it was called. Oh, yeah. Uh Yeah. Yeah. And you could just like plug. It was like a little cartridge that went into your Super Nintendo and you could plug your Game Boys and your Game Boy games into it. Right. And uh, that was kind of fun because you could kind of like get them in color, but not really. It had like these built-in features where you could just like artificially color the game. Mm -hmm. There was like a paint mode. I remember you could decorate the border because the screen was so small. Yeah. (laughs) So I remember that being kind of cool, but that was like the opposite. It's like, take your game boy games and put them on the big, big screen. And that that was pretty novel at the time. Well, and for the most part that worked out really well, especially because game boys didn't have backlighting then. So you were seeing these, these vibrant colors that you weren't experiencing when you were taking it on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now I wanted to bring up Guitar Hero as one of these mm. one of these peripherals or I mean I guess Guitar Hero is technically a game but it's like so tied to the peripherals that surround it that I I think they are are like indistinguishable like you can't discuss one without the other. But this right. kind of goes to what I was talking about where if the thing you release doesn't work the whole experience falls apart. Now here's an example of they they came to the market with this really hard sell, right? Like in order to play this game, you have to have this like huge controller. I mean, at least compared to this. If you want to play with friends, you got to have a bunch of them. Yeah. You got to have a bunch of them. A rock band. Yeah. You got to, you got to find room in your house for a drum set and two guitars and a microphone and have a place that, you know, all your friends can gather around your TV. You know, like that's a really hard sell, but all of that stuff just worked. And it worked. It was so great. Yeah. You were, (laughs) you felt like a goddamn rock star when you were playing those games, dude. yeah, yeah, dude, you could play Freebird all day. Of all time. What was your What was your guys' favorite song to play in Rock Band or Guitar Hero? Do you guys have one? Oh God! I only ask oh. because I was I was listening to the radio the other day, which is something I don't often do. And You're say Weezer, aren't you? Yeah, say it ain't so. <laughs> say it ain't so was on the radio, and I was like, dude, now I wish I hadn't got rid of all my peripherals for Rock Band because I just want to play that game now. So Steve would he got so familiar with that that Weezer song. He would he would tuck a microphone into his shirt so that it would stay put underneath his shirt. He would sing. He would play drums. No, I play guitar. You play guitar. I swear I saw you try to play drums and guitar. I at might one have point, been. But now I, I might have been I think, able to. I'm... Just like in between or something. <laughs> That's uh, that, that might be the nerdiest image you've ever put in people's heads about me. <laughs> it's a man with a microphone stuffed in his I'm shirt, just so he didn't have just to hold it. it. How I saw it. <laughs> No, dude, loud and proud. That was that was awesome getting to play those songs. You know, it, it did. It lived up to that that feeling of like you are a rock star and all of those things. 
that. Well, especially the drums, because it was, you know, if you were playing on some of the harder difficulties, it was almost a one-to-one experience of playing the drums. So yeah. I felt like I was actually learning something and acquiring like a skill that might carry over into, you know, an, another another medium. Did it? Uh, playing playing System of a Down and, and trying to get like double bass pedals down. And, and, yeah. and it, that was like super challenging. And um, no, it didn't. <laughs> it did. <laughs> it didn't. I didn't like pick up my own drum set, but I know people who did, you know, they went out and bought you know, like those electronic drum sets that you could play outside the game that were also, you were able to hook them up through one way or another to your PlayStation because they just enjoyed it that much. But um, it was, I don't know, it's just a lot of fun. That was like probably one of my favorite peripherals I can think of. I feel like those games really redefined what a, a party video game was. Like, oh, yeah. You, you really set aside the time to gather your friends together. And if you were at a party and someone just fired it off in the background, everyone would kind of like, be the audience and, and you know it yeah was, it was pretty neat how violently that pendulum swung back the other way oh, but no, now right? now the just standard, like goodwill's full of plastic guitars well, and stuff. that yeah. and the fact that now the go-to party games for a lot of people are those things like jackbox where yeah where the, it's very decluttered it's just you're you know everyone kind of bring your own cell phone to the party you probably did it anyway let's uh let's jam on some drawful and it's yeah. a blast those games are really smart I think Rock Band and Guitar Hero hit people, at least speaking for myself and probably for Jared, like hit us at that age where we were we were in college and we had you know room in our lives for big plastic instruments. And once people around my age, you know, sort of got out of those those living situation, you know, found significant others. Or started getting harder to get people together. Yeah. Or, you know, or careers or wanted to start to be taken more seriously. There's no room in your life for all those, all those peripherals anymore. So you had, you, right. you shed them. And now for, you know, for the, the people my age, a game like Jackbox using your cell phones is the sort of ideal. Yeah. It was yeah. definitely like, seemed like a right, right place, right time for that thing. It burned very brightly. What do you guys think about vr in this discussion jared i know you're probably have some strong opinions about this but do you consider vr a peripheral experience or do you think it's kind of its own platform i think vr is its own medium i don't don't think we should be treating vr as it is today as as an extension of games that were that were being designed before vr came out basically um i think it's an experience that needs to be built from the ground up to be something different. You know, I've kind of expressed this before. I don't want to play Skyrim in VR. I have no, I have no desire for that because it's not really a game that was built for it. So I, I very much view VR as less of a peripheral and more of its, its own medium. Now, Aldrin, I think you kind of have a little bit of a different feeling about this. What do you think about VR in this discussion? Like as big as a fan I am of, of what I've experienced so far with VR, uh, I, I'm not really experienced the um, like a good Google Cardboard version, but I have been in the Vive and the Oculus. And while I agree that it's a great experience, I do think it is more of a peripheral because it can't. You you need something else in order to get the experience that you need. And even if I bought an Oculus at a discount now, I'd still have to have a PC that I was confident could run it, um, or I would have to have like. The, just the right kind of cell phone that could give you that experience, like a Samsung one. Um, or or you have to go out to one of these like virtual arcades that have them on display. Um, so 
so for me to I, I can't really consider it as its own separate console because it's not something I can just pick up, plug in, and start going with. I feel like like if you bought a, a Vive, you have to you know set up the cameras, and I feel like anything that has a lot of setup um, is a side experience. But I, I mean, that's just that. me personally. Yeah, I I mean you look at you look at the Vive setup, and you got the lighthouses, and then you have all the cables coming out the back of the back of the headset, and then you yeah. have to have headphones, you know, on top of that. It's a uh, it's quite a whole whole thing. I think these VR manufacturers and developers are kind of in a hard spot because I agree with you, Jared. I think that VR, for it to truly succeed, needs to sort of decouple itself from that video game mentality of like people love shooters. Let's get Call of Duty on this thing. Like, no, that's not what that's not the kind of experience that VR necessarily lends itself to. But they're just tied so strongly to PCs or to the uh, the PlayStation in the case of the PSVR. And I think there was a rumor that I read recently. Uh, I, I don't really remember where I heard it from, but the Oculus is working on not having any having to connect it to a computer for their next iteration. I think now that would be amazing. I think that's going to be critical for the true success of VR. Where developers, but they're going to have to like I don't know like the technology exists for that yet. Like I'm, I have no idea how they're going to do that. I mean, if that means that like it also comes with a backpack that you have to strap on, <laughs> like that's they're going to have to figure something out that's uh, it's going to give you that same experience because you know putting putting the Google cardboard on or even the uh, what's the Google or the other one that Google has Google like Glass. the Dream Dream VR or something. Oh, oh, right. Um, and just putting a phone in it, it's not the same experience as, as the Oculus and the Vive no, with, with the right. positional tracking. So, And unfortunately, this- those experiences can't exist without um, being uncomfortable. Like, as comfortable as an Oculus is or a PlayStation VR is, you still have this cumbersome headset that, you know, you can only really play for so long before you either get too hot or you strain from the, from, from the weight of it or whatever. Um, and like, kind of like we talked about, some of the best peripheral experiences that I've had in my life was stuff like Rock Band or um, you know, like the light, even the light gun playing Duck Hunt with other people within the same room or Jackbox in the same room, and it's this very communal experience. But as soon as you strap on a, a VR headset, all that kind of goes away. Like it's not fun to just watch someone swing around and you know, unless they're falling over, it's it's not much of a, a party thing. Yeah, that's kind of my other problem with VR is that it's such a singular experience that you aren't really able to share the experience with someone else unless you have them come over. But even then, only one person at a time is ever having that experience. That's kind of the way video games are headed in general, I think. There's not a whole lot of times where I get the opportunity to play video games in the same room with other people. But I think a lot of those cooperative or competitive experiences have been shifted online. Which I think is funny because um, you can make the argument that mobile gaming is the opposite of that. And with Nintendo having the Switch, they're almost kind of cap because you can take your Switch with you to other places like you have. Mm -hmm. You know, people have been doing it with 3DS and for Game Boy forever. But the fact that the Switch is like your modern console experience uh, on the go you can have like eight people in one room playing Mario Kart together. You can take it to something, say, like Kyle's Fourth of July party. Yeah, and and you know like um, the you know trash talking in person is so much more fun than you know being yelled at by a thirteen year old. Yeah, oh yeah. So like 
my, for me, what would be awesome is if there was a Nintendo Switch game like Mario Party or something that also interacted with a physical board. And I've, while VR is awesome, I feel like the next interesting step for me would be something in augmented reality because, you know, VR makes you kind of escape the real world. And pff, we all kind of know that that's a little necessary these days. Um, I, don't know, I but, don't know what you're talking about. Everything, everything's uh, you perfect know, just right the now. stresses of life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would love to see something where, like, if I had a, a clear slate that can just overlay information about my surroundings, that that's why I've always wanted to see what a Google Glass was like, just out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that bringing, bringing a virtual um, experience into the real world is more interesting to me than escaping into a virtual world. it was it was when they first started showing off the hololens microsoft's yeah. uh, ar headset playing minecraft in your living yeah, room and it was like wow. oh. that seems so rad and it seemed cool right so it was like it. oh cool you know you'll be able to play like pokemon go out in the real world and actually like throw oh, a ball man. and catch a pokemon and like that was sort of the the promise of that stuff and now yeah now that's what everything i want, I want I've seen that now. for the the hololens is stuff like you can hold a corporate meeting and see everyone around the table. And I'm like, oh my god, what happened to you, Hololens? You used to be cool. You could, you could be part of the Jedi Council. Remember when you could do conference calls in your underwear? Well, no longer. <laughs> no longer. Now everyone can see. Or they sell you, they sell you virtual pants, and then you don't. <laughs> Microtransactions. Uh, We're onto something. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. Man, there are so many good peripherals. Like, I'm trying to think of like a way to shoehorn them all it's into hard. this podcast. It's hard because there's been so many attempts at things over the years. Um, we were talking a little bit before this about the Donkey Konga. Oh yeah, you know, like and and the Donkey Konga experience was fun, but it was just for that one game and didn't yeah. kind of. It was Guitar Hero before Guitar Hero. Yeah. <laughs> It was Parappa the Rappa after Parappa the Rappa. I don't know. It was Samba de Amigo before <laughs> Samba de Amigo. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of these peripherals are around like rhythm gaming, huh? Yeah, because I think I think because people want an instrument experience. Like you see someone with a guitar, and and you're not going to have that same experience playing with a PlayStation controller. Like you could, you could play it the way you play amplitude or frequency, but you want to have. You want to have like something to strum. You want to be able to feel like you're rocking out. And yeah, I mean, peripherals essentially let you do your gaming as a cosplayer. I was really excited for the future of the Dreamcast VMU, which was like this little pack that you plugged into the Dreamcast controller. Like it just mm-hmm, it fit mm-hmm. in there. There was a little slot for the screen. And it's like a little uh, Tamagotchi, right? Yeah. Like, and like, um, it was, I was, what did it come with? Like, there wasn't there a Final Fantasy on the Dreamcast? Am I crazy? Because I, I remember, the like, one thing you I could, like, have remember, a chocobo in that. The one thing I remember from that screen was, I think, in Resident Evil, it would, like, show your, yeah, show your health. Yeah. Yeah. And that huh. was, like, the one yeah. memory I have of that thing. I remember being super excited for it. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to be able to play, like, light versions of my Dreamcast games on this VMU that I could take out with me. And it turned out like it had like a 20 minute battery life outside the controller and then it didn't really do anything. <laughs> but I was really excited for it at the time. Like kind of bummed. They didn't go anywhere. I know people are still like looking for them as like a collector's item. Apparently they sure. got, they've gotten kind of rare mm. um, and who knows like if they're actually still functional. See the, the and is, isn't that the interesting thing? It's like people like the, the pendulum swings both ways 
but then nostalgia brings it back to you and you're like, oh, I should never have gotten rid of my Donkey Konga drums. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I think those were like hard to find and expensive too for a while. And if you were trying to find them on eBay, I remember people selling those for a pretty penny. Meanwhile, you can go to a place like uh, Goodwill where they have no idea what anything is. So you're like, oh, I can get this Wii Fit board for $5. Sure. I'll go grab this. <laughs> I'll give you one dollar for it. Um, <laughs> let's. So if we're if we're sort of getting on the train of like weird peripherals that came out, let's talk a little bit about Steel Battalion, which was the peripheral to end all peripherals. Yeah, right? I've heard the legend of Steel Battalion. So explain Steel Battalion as a game first. Uh, so Steel Battalion was uh, like a mech game, um, sort of a la Armored Core or the Gundam series. You're like a mech pilot. You're a mech pilot, like yeah. And the game launched with a, I, I hesitate to call it a controller because it's more like a full <laughs> living room conversion you have to make. It's a console. Yeah. Right? It's a lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> um, but basically what it was is it had like, it had flight sticks, it had pedals, uh, it had an entire board of switches and buttons. I think I think there were over a hundred switches and buttons on it that all did things in the game, controlled little individual parts of your mech. I remember seeing this yeah. thing when I was younger and having my mind blown. I I was always super interested in simulators, even from like the first Microsoft Flight Sim. And so when I saw this thing, I was like, "Holy crap! This is everything I ever wanted." And uh, you know, and then I heard people were like, "Well." Turns out the game isn't that good. So <laughs> you it, have this. Was like, it on Xbox 360? I think it was the original Xbox, wasn't it? Wow. I think it might have been the original Xbox. So on Xbox 360, they released Steel Battalion 2, which was the, well, obviously it was the sequel, but they decided that they were not going to release a peripheral with it. Instead, they were going to use their Kinect technology. So it went, oh, it went oh, from oh, having boy. literally the craziest controller ever conceived by man to having no controller at all, and you use the motion controls with the Connect to move. Connect. So now you can pantomime like you're in VR without all the VR stuff. Yeah. Uh, Everybody's favorite peripheral, the Connect. I never had an opportunity to play the Connect version of the game. The the sense I got from people who did play it was it was okay for about five minutes and then just boring as hell. You never want that to be the yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind. That can kind of be said about a lot of these peripherals, things that are outside of sort of the, the light gun experiences. Some of them, that's about all the appeal that they have is they're fun for a short period of time, and then it's hard to sort of maintain that uh, that enthusiasm, that excitement. Even the Guitar Hero and Rock Band stuff suffered that. You know, we yeah the control video game controllers have existed since what what did we say 1962 with Space War. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as there's sort of this like standard method of interacting with your games that has existed. I mean, it's changed over time, but it's been a, you know, a progress, but the, these peripherals, there haven't been very many that have stuck around for a long period of time with, like I said, maybe the exception of light guns. Although I haven't really seen anyone have a light gun in their home, maybe since dreamcast. Yeah, it's true. You know what I think it is, is because these, these peripherals attempt to, uh, bring you an arcade experience for the home and by design arcade experiences were only meant to last for maybe five yeah ten that's a really good until point you could put another quarter in uh, i do think it's interesting that like the reverse is true now because everybody has a high-powered console in their home 
uh, classic arcades and places like Dave and Buster's try to swing the opposite way where it's like, how can we have a gaming experience that you can't do in your home? So now you have things like the Star Wars battle pods. You have um, you have like uh, beer pong games that give you tickets. Uh, I think it's silly that there are these giant versions of um, uh, Fruit Ninja and Temple Run yeah. where you can like touch a giant screen. <laughs> but yeah, all those light gun games, those sit down racers, you can only really get those experiences in arcades. And that's what makes those arcades fun. Which is why I kind of think VR should be at home in a place like that. Because, um, you know, if I can't afford to put a car in my house, I'll go to your Dave and Buster's and play for 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Um, We don't typically talk about news too much on here. But this year, there was something kind of interesting that happened with peripherals, which was that Mad Cats, the company really well known for making third-party peripherals, filed for bankruptcy. I'm surprised it's took in this long. <laughs> well, so I I was reading interviews with uh, some of the employees from Mad Cats, and they're surprised it took this long. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we were talking to Mr. Aquaman, Ryan, Ryan mm-hmm. and he's, uh, if you haven't listened to the episode yet, he's a, a fight game commentator, and he, you know, he was talking about the fight sticks, and Mad Cats, I think, held on for a long time because of the popularity of fight games and, and the mm. professional scenes around Evo and all that kind of thing. Because um, from my understanding, all those Mad Cats fight sticks were just, like, top-notch, like, some of the best you could yeah. buy. They did have... They- oh, so they actually made controllers that were good. Yeah, yeah. well, for a while. Yeah. Because uh, I always I always considered Mad Cats was the thing where you were like, all right, if you, uh, if you lose... Or if you're, if you're winning too much, your handicap is you mm. play with this. Yeah, yep. it was the, it was yeah, the controller you handed cool. to your little brother. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and so Mad Cats filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy instead of the sort of typical, the, the popular Chapter 11 <laughs> bankruptcy. The one all the cool companies that chapter go for. <laughs> <laughs> that hot, hot millennial <laughs> Chapter 11. Yeah. Chapter 7. So Chapter 11... I guess leaves the door open for you to reincorporate. Chapter seven basically says we're done. We're, we're just done. Li- we're liquidating all of our assets and we're out of the game. Um, so uh, that puts that puts Seven Eleven in a different perspective. <laughs> <from me. laughs> they um, Mad Cats has like such a crazy story. So I, it, in doing research for this, I I just dug into Mad Cats background. Yeah, en- enlighten me. This this feels interesting. so they um. They were riding a high uh, in 2011 based on the success of Rock Band 3, which I didn't realize they were sort of the, the, the primary company that was manufacturing the peripherals for that. Hmm. Um, and, in, and they wow. started like splitting their attention to a lot of different things, including actually publishing and developing software, um, which I guess through red flags for a lot of the employees, but they found, I don't know, the big wigs at Mad Cats found, I don't know, found it necessary to get into these areas. And they, they did things like, uh, we're going to publish a rugby game in the United States. And uh, surprise, surprise, it failed. And it was just sort of this That's like weird. long, um, yeah, it was this long string of weird decisions like that of like, let's, what happens if we develop this kind of game or publish this kind of thing? But the big one for them was Rock Band 4 which they actually helped co-publish and made hmm. the peripherals for. And when that game came out, I mean, I think it was pretty critically successful, but was 
financially a failure. That was it for their company. The other thing that they did that I think is kind of interesting, and I'll, I'll read this quote from uh, this article. Uh, the article's titled, How Mad Cats Used Up Its Last Life. Nice cat pun. Um, Alex <laughs> Calvin wrote it in for, uh, for Eurogamer, and it says, uh, Mad Cats decided at one point that it was a premium brand. Mad Cats was always the less expensive controller that you bought instead of the first party controller because it was cheaper. Brands generally can move down market, but it's really extremely difficult to take your brand up market. Meaning they, one of the other things that they did was they tried to jump into this sort of newer, at least to me, it feels like a a new market uh, of these premium controllers, but they were still tied to the name Mad Cats. It was like the Mad Cats premium controller for a hundred bucks and you would, you would look at it and you'd go like, isn't Mad Cats the company that makes those shitty controllers? Why would I pay a hundred dollars yeah. for them? And then, like other companies, you feel like would have kind of cut their losses and at least just changed the name of the company or just done you know businesses under another name at that point. Happy dogs. Yeah. I think they. I think they thought their name had happy dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a second. <laughs> I think they thought their name carried uh, familiarity with it, and I, I guess it did, but not the familiarity that was helpful for them they made a two hundred dollar pair of headphones and um a, a gaming mouse for mobile phone gaming oh yeah whoa what a weird thing to do and uh, obviously it was a 100 percent flop for them and i was like man what a what a fucking gamble <laughs> there's like shooting for the moon on that kind of stuff yeah and they were like they were acquiring audio companies and stuff to to flesh out stuff like their their headphone accessories and and things like that but it's does this mean anything does this mean anything for the future of peripherals do we see fewer companies trying to make these i don't know what to call them like i, I call them like third-party peripherals I, I feel like that traditionally has meant sort of like the lower quality peripherals but i guess we are now seeing these newer premium peripherals but what is what does the bankruptcy of mad cats mean for the future of of third-party peripherals if anything being a Switch owner, I've noticed there's a company called Hori, H-O-R-I, that seems to be Nintendo's go-to for, for accessories right now. Um, and I don't think that there are, like, controller alternatives. Actually, no, there is a pro controller alternative that is wired that the Hori company makes. And that's, I think, supposed to be the Mad Cat's version of, of their pro controller. But other than that, I don't know. I mean, ooh. Do you, I mean, I definitely I, feel I like I saw win. more peripherals as a younger gamer and less so right. these days. Um, I don't know if that's just because I'm not, it's just not really my jam. I just, this having a controller for one specific game, I think just most people don't have room for in their lives for that anymore. You know, right. less and less people are owning their own houses, more people are putting off having kids. So are you blaming millennials just, for the death of Mad Cats? Listen, it's it's just a it's just a fact of life. Um, you know, like the popularity of avocados, they're just delicious. But I just think that it's just the culture shift. There's not people just don't need this stuff and they're they're finding alternative ways like using the phone that you already have and use every day. So yeah. I I just think it's more of a culture shift than anything. Mad Cats was kind of casting a wide net toward especially towards the end it looks like. So I think they were I think they were uh, looking at this thing that you're talking about. I think they were saying like people are less and less interested in these sort of, you know, one-off unique controllers. What else can we do? You know, where else can we invest our time and money to, to try to find a foothold for success? And it sounds crazy when you look back at it and think like, you know, what were they doing developing and publishing software? That sounds crazy for a company that made the shitty controller that I, you know, I used to give to my younger sibling. 
But I think it kind of, I think they saw the writing on the wall and were like, look, these, you know, people are not as interested in this stuff. We got to, we got to try to figure out where else we can make money. Nothing panned out, but I, I think they were, they were trying to find a lifeboat on a sinking ship. Let's just say millennials. <laughs> That's, I guess, maybe the easier answer. I mean, I guess peripheral companies have to just make their stuff so attractive that you feel like you can't not have. Them. Yeah, I think these. I think the idea of these pro controllers is a good idea. It's the kind of stuff that I personally am interested in, uh, especially because the PlayStation Four controllers might be the shittiest controllers they've ever released for a console. Whoa, really? I, I think the standard controllers, standard controllers. Yeah, I think they really well, I think they feel good in your hand. And I think that when they work, they they work really well. My problem. But it's got a little touchpad on it. Well, yeah. That, and that uh, I maybe we could talk about that as a peripheral too. that just for the most part, everyone just uses it as a button, like a big fucking button yeah. in the middle of your controller that opens your map. <laughs> but I mean, I feel like that's the way the uh, the rear screen on the uh, PS Vita yeah. where you're like, oh, you can touch the back and you're like, why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But my my problem with the PS4 controllers is that I've purchased, I think, six PS4 controllers since the console's been out. Whoa. And three Dude, of them you doing? And three of them have broken. What are you doing Whoa. with your controllers? Nothing, I, I'm not doing anything different with my controllers than I did for my PlayStation 3 controllers, for which I bought four. I bought four PlayStation 3 controllers, and all four of them still function just fine. And that I'm talking about like since wow. PlayStation 3 first came out, those controllers are still working fine. So I don't know what it is about the PlayStation 4 controllers, like where they... I, I, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just anecdotally like having a bad experience and they're pretty good, but I feel like when 50% of my controllers have failed in one way or another, that's not a good sign. That's hard to ignore. Yeah. So I I personally am interested in the idea of someone stepping in and saying like we're gonna make a a super high quality PlayStation 4 controller. It'll cost you a hundred dollars, but it's you know but you know it'll work and work well forever. That that's appealing to me, and I I think since we're starting to see a lot more of these things coming out, appealing to other people as well. I mean, Microsoft did that. It wasn't third party, but they released the Xbox Elite controller. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, that thing seems really decent. Yeah, I actually picked one up on a refurbished and discounted. And uh, I do think that is a swell controller. So yeah, if you want to do something like a premium experience, then I guess I'm down for that as long as it's not super novel and adds like a turbo button or you know right. whatever. Like I'm not even really interested in things like the paddles that they're yeah. optional on that controller well, see, like it's just... sin- and since the sort of advent of online console gaming things like turbo buttons are i think more or less considered sort of cheating um yeah yeah, yeah they have yeah. like detection for that stuff yeah now where it's like they don't well it was it was it. a big deal in overwatch because people found out that if you uh with soldier 76's uh the way his gun fired that it was after i think i think three or four rounds is when the bloom started to appear in his um, the pattern for his firing. And uh, if you let go of the fire button, it would instantly reset. So when you pressed it, when you fired again, uh, you would have none of that bloom, none of that um, recoil. Hmm. Huh. Um, so people found out, you know, exactly how long the interval was for three or four, three or four rounds. And people... So this you was can more set it so the computer just does that for you. Yes, exactly. You could set it so that when I hold my mouse button down, you're going to assume that every whatever it was, you know, three quarters of a second, I'm letting go of the button and hitting it again. So people were having this like spot on accuracy with Soldier 76. 
the the way that Blizzard combated that was essentially they just changed they just changed it so that his uh, recoil kicks in even if you release the button. Like there's a cool there's kind of a cooldown on it. You know that kind of calls to the the point of like why games like Overwatch don't do cross platform. Where I almost feel like since I play on my PC, I should theoretically be able to play against someone on PlayStation Four. But the input on a mouse and keyboard is so drastically different from a, a standard controller that there are advantages and disadvantages to keep in mind. Yes, and I think like I, I know a keyboard and a mouse isn't considered a peripheral, but you can't deny that the experience in a first-person shooter almost feels better with a mouse. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and that's something that Blizzard also deals with because the PlayStation 4 does not natively support keyboard and mouse for gaming. Right. Um, you have to go through sort of like these these hardware-software workarounds in order to get it to work on the console. Mm-hmm. So Blizzard defines the use of mouse and keyboard in Overwatch as cheating, yeah, for console. On console, right? yeah. But PlayStation itself does not consider it cheating, so Blizzard has no recourse for dealing with it, except saying, like, right. please don't do it. Hmm. Huh. But wow. they've come out, yeah, they've they talked about that publicly, saying, like, yeah, these are these kinds of peripherals. We consider them cheating. So if you were ever to walk into yeah. a sanctioned tournament for Overwatch on console, which is something I'm sure doesn't really exist, but you would not yeah. be able to walk in with a mouse and keyboard on a console and, and play it that way. Something. Well, I think it's it's interesting because like the you you had mentioned the Elite Pro controller, and one thing that I realized about it just messing around with it was that you so you can set the sensitivity on your sticks and you can map the buttons uh, very specifically for your play styles mm-hmm. um, to like a slot. So there's a switch on the front where like I've I've made it so that in Overwatch. Uh, I have one configuration where the, the the aiming stick is is you know set to a precise sensitivity that I want, and that's on my slot one. But on the fly, I can swap it to slot two with a switch, um, where now I'm more focused on mobile, like uh, mobile moving, and and the the aiming sensitivity is drastically different based on who I'm playing as, and I almost feel like that's this weird advantage that I have that not. Uh, regular players with regular controllers can do because mm. like they can't set a sensitivity they can't just in the middle of switching characters flip to this is my sniper mode now this is my run around mode but you're playing on pc right well i primarily i play overwatch on pc but i'm talking about like i, I do also have it on xbox one oh, okay because i want to play with some xbox friends but i have this setup now that almost feels dirty mm. having because of this peripheral that is this like quality premium experience now well that's been a thing with pc gamers for a long time is is being able to hardware set your sensitivity on your mouse so that when you're you're running and gunning it's it's a lot looser but then you press a button and when you're sniping you're a lot more precise so it's like i think that's just been around for a long time and it's up to some of the developers to kind of balance a game in such a way where that's not a huge advantage but i I see what you're saying though that there's like that there are these gaming things now where now you have to consider: Is your opponent playing on a on a level playing field? Like, are do they have their mouse sensitivity at at a certain point where they can just hit a button real quick and and you're instantly dead? Whereas you can practice for your whole life and never be as good because you don't have a two hundred dollar mouse. Like, it's it, that's that's an interesting thing about like gaming peripherals for PCs is that 
I feel like you, you know how people hate microtransactions in mobile games. You're like, oh, I I paid to win. Mm-hmm. I, I think mean, we have an email about PC that players out. have been paying to win a lot. If I buy a two hundred dollar mouse, I have a more I have more of an advantage than you who's playing with a trackpad. Yeah. So I heard a kind of a weird thing from the Destiny Two PC beta, and you have the option to play either with a, a, a a controller like you would you know you just plug in an xbox controller to your pc and play that way uh, or you can play with mouse and keyboard but one of the ways that this is pretty common in a lot of games too if you're playing with a controller like on on the console you get something called auto aim and that just kind of helps you be a little bit more precise right. helps you land headshots mm-hmm. well apparently in the uh, destiny 2 beta as long as you had a controller plugged into your usb port somewhere on your computer you would get auto aim with mouse and keyboard too. Oh, shut up! Yeah, so it's a uh, people were like, you have to fix this day one, otherwise yeah, multiplayer is going to be unplayable. Um, that that'll be. A, wow. I, I think that's an easy fix, and I, I hope uh, Bungie or, or or Blizzard is is wait who who it's not Blizzard it's right? Activision Blizzard it's it's Activision Blizzard. yeah so it's like on Battle they, they kind of have a partner but yeah anyways they that's an easy fix hopefully in something that they they do but I that's a yeah, big problem that's I don't know I don't know if that makes it easier or harder on on the PC I have no idea yeah it's it's gonna be weird because yeah you're in that weird spot in between like having when do you turn auto in yeah on? yeah and that seems like clearly something that's not intended it's probably just a an artifact of of them just sort of overlooking that. Um, is there anything else that was like that we really wanted to bring up before we wrap up our discussion? I don't think so. I'm just looking at this god awful oh. Mad Cat's mouse that they released, and it's just really I, bugging me. <laughs> have Have you guys heard of this uh, this Star Wars lightsaber AR experience that Lenovo? I've heard a little bit about it. I don't fully understand what it is. That was um that was at so, like that was like at a Star Wars Star Wars Day Disney Day that they revealed that. I think so. So, so this company Lenovo is making an AR single player experience uh, for Star Wars, where you you buy a headset that you would put your phone in, um, and it comes with like a, I think a tracker and a a prop lightsaber mm-hmm. that has a sensor thing on top of it, and the idea is you play hologram games in your living room, uh, so you can have a lightsaber duel with Kylo Ren, or you can play uh, hologram chess on your dining room table. And uh, for two hundred dollars, I feel like I would go into that peripheral experience. What if it, what if it was just, just like Star Wars? What if it shit? was just like the part of the movies where Luke has the blast shield down and he's trying to deflect? Like, what if it? What if you put I your phone in it and is it what just it is. blocks all of your vision, and then it just tells you if you if you blocked the laser or not? That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't see. And then your Samsung phone just explodes when you lose. <laughs> oh God, I'm blind. Yeah. Story checks out. Uh, so you're really you're really excited for this. Yeah, uh, I've always wanted um, you know a lightsaber. I've I feel like there have been many missed opportunities for a lightsaber style game ever since the Wii came out. I've been waiting for a just good one to one lightsaber experience, mm-hmm. and the closest I've gotten to it recently was um, on the Vive. There's a thing called Trials on Tatooine, and uh, halfway through that experience, you're given a lightsaber and you literally are waving it one to one. You're blocking stormtrooper mm-hmm. fire, uh, and I've always wanted an experience like that. And like this feels like um, the closest I'll ever get to wielding a lightsaber in real life against yeah. Darth Vader. So here's you know? so here's my biggest issue with that idea with this Star Wars lightsaber game that they're coming out with, and 
other attempts at sort of like wielding swords in games in the past, which uh-huh. is sure. the lack of um, what's it called? Yeah, Resistance. like the haptic feedback that I that idea that you right. can just sort of swing wildly and the the game doesn't restrict your motion and then breaks that sort of yeah. immersion that you're that you're actually holding a lightsaber or a sword, right? Or, you know, whatever it is in the right. in the particular game that you're playing. That's one of the things. You know, typically we wrap up the show by kind of asking what we want to see more of in the future for each of these topics, and I think especially in relation to the discussions of AR and VR, the one thing that that I think really needs to come out in order to like fully satisfy my childhood dreams of, of VR is getting that haptic feedback. Yeah. I don't even know how you would do that with like a sword swing. Like, I don't even know what that would, what if it, it would be a series of pistons and <laughs> yeah. poles that you would have to put in your, in your and, uh, living room. Yeah. It's like that the lighthouse. literally stand up and like block you while mm-hmm. you're fighting. And then it hits you. If you, if I mean, you I've miss, seen, I've seen some die. things where, where there's sort of like full body suits that, that you wear and then like when you swing a sword it's not like the sword it's you know it's not like your hand comes in contact with something but the suit itself prevents you from like extending your arm any further forward Mm. Um, and it gives you feedback in that way so it's not perfect one-to-one but i know there's there are you know people in the world trying to come up with ways to to uh you know, fix these fix these problems. Well, it's kind of like the uh, the running problem in VR games, where you're like, right now, the the best solution people seem to have is teleportation for mobility. Exactly. Yeah. And like, I I know that there are these third party things where you wear special shoes and you set you stand up in like this dish that kind of surrounds you, and so you can run in place to run. But like, again, that's kind of one of those reasons why I feel like VR is going to take a while to get into the mainstream because as long as you need to continue getting more and more equipment for your experience to be better, like that's that barrier of entry is just so high. Maybe this isn't totally peripheral related, but I think from the future of these kind of things, I, 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 I do think VR is going to be, is kind of guide peripherals as we move forward. Uh, I would like to see more of like an amusement park setup where it's like an amusement park in VR almost, or maybe it has to be AR to make it make sense and be logistically viable. But I envision, you know, just a huge warehouse where they can build entire sets. And there is like, you know, people, um, you know, like pushing into you. There's, there's actual physical tactile things happening in the world around you as you play uh, with this video game and these real world elements combining. I think that would be super cool. Um, you know, I've already seen they stuff computers in backpacks and you just, you throw on a headset and walk around and I I think that would be awesome. Uh, but you know, cost issues there could be prohibitive. There's, I know there's a company that is manufacturing these sort of like cube spaces. They're just like, it's like a big glass cube and you can place sort of these like blocks in this giant cube so the cube is whatever like 15 feet by 15 feet but then it it has all these like modular things you can add to it like the tiles on the floor can vibrate or move or you can put a like a table in the room and then you program sort of like a specific vr experience for the floor plan that you that you've laid out in that room and i know this this Hmm. company's sort of trying to get these things down to a price point where like arcades can just buy them and then you get the tomb exploration one at the arcade, or you play the the sci-fi shooter one at the arcade. But they're these like pre-built rooms that the uh, the game is already aware of, like where everything is in that 
little cube space. I think we can agree that all roads of this lead to some dark Black Mirror-esque future that we're oh, no headed doubt. towards. Yeah, for sure. I, I know, yeah, I'm, exci- I'm excited to see how humanity dooms itself. Where is my Wally hover chair? <laughs> so let, let's go ahead and wrap this conversation up. What do you guys want to see uh, in the future of hardware peripherals for video games? And Aldrin, I'll throw it to you first. Is there, some, is there something that you think that could be done better in the future or something you'd like to see implemented that you haven't seen yet? What, what does the future hold in Aldrin's mind? Um, I do think augmented reality is a great idea. I, I actually would love to see a company do holograms. Like when, when Microsoft was talking about HoloLens and how that kind of gave you the impression of holograms, that, that was cool. But to, to be able to project 3D images into uh, you know a real space, and then having that be the the interaction that that, that seems kind of uh, that that seems to be the best. You're case taking scenario you're taking the real long view on this. That's what you want to see in the future oh, yeah. of games. That's good. I like that. Yeah, but but you know, like VR. If if you had said 30 years ago that VR would be any better than um, Lawnmower Man or reboot <laughs> graphics. You would have laughed at it, but like we're looking at some really crazy experiences in VR right now. Um, so to to think that holograms could be just over the horizon, I don't think is that big a leap to make. Very cool. How about you, Jared? What do you want to see in the future? I think inherently all this stuff to be successful is going to have to have some. It's going to have to be a social thing. It, you ha- you can't play a game anymore without some kind of social aspect to it. Sure. So, you know, VR being as singular experience as that is, um, uh, it's going to be hard for them to to make that digestible, I guess, for, for a larger audience. And I, I don't know what that thing is, but I am still chasing that rock band experience, that rock band high. So I want something that's going to, you know, they're going to make a game that, that's, that's really going to benefit from something, a peripheral that's similar to that. Like, like I don't want a big plastic peripheral sitting in my in my living now, room. How about, it's just not the life I live anymore. So I don't know what that's going to be. How about that Star Trek, the Star Trek bridge crew, something like that? Is that Ooh. is that kind of like what you're thinking about? Because that's that's yeah, v, maybe that's a VR experience, but it's also it's also a social social experience. Yeah, it, but if you have a full game of like whatever, like six people or whatever it takes to put on the bridge, and that's like what, like ten grand in in your room? Well, yeah, no, no, like you, insane. You don't, like, but you don't have to play it all in the same space. It's it's a I, VR I know, game, but like, I, but that would be most ideal. Yeah, I don't want to play that. No, there's no reality. I want to play that with random people. That sounds awful. I saw the giant bomb crew. They they got everybody together in the same space playing that, and they had a lot of fun. I don't think I would want to play with random people on the internet though. See now what that would benefit from a virtual reality arcade situation where you're like, oh, my friends and I would like to rent this space for two hours and we're going to play Star Trek Bridge Crew as it was meant to be played all together with the same equipment Mm -hmm. like that to me would be awesome. Yeah, I'm surprised that that doesn't exist yet, but who knows what the demand would be for it. Yeah. Steve, what about you, man? Um, I don't know. I don't know what I want to see in the future. You know, we talk about VR. Is it a peripheral? Is it not a peripheral? I'm I'm excited for where VR goes. Um, I just, I hope that they can get sort of the price down a little bit to where I can afford it. Or or conversely, I'd like to make enough money that I can afford it. I guess that would probably be the preferable. That's the ideal scenario. The preferable scenario, yeah. I don't know. VR, please? Is that, does that satisfy the, the, the question? 
I don't know. It's Maybe. it's hard because I I don't know that there's necessarily anything bad or good about peripherals. I think they when it's done well, when peripherals are done well, like Rock Band and Guitar Hero, you can have a lot of fun with it. And when it's done poorly, like uh, like the Wii U and the Kinect, it can it can be bad. It, it's <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what I want to see in the future. Good things are good, bad things are yep. bad. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Let's move on to uh, some community feedback. Jared, what do we got? Our good friend, Chester Copperpot on Facebook, is writing in about our Loot Boxes episode. We had a, a, a psychologist of video games, uh, Jamie Madigan. He was on talking about some psychology behind Loot Boxes. And uh, Chester Copperpot says, I really feel like some titles, especially free-to-play, punish the player if they don't engage in microtransactions. Not exactly loot boxes, but you touched on the subject. Sometimes the grind is really rough and I'll just quit playing because the grind isn't fun. Then again, I may not be their target audience if I don't go along with my microtransactions. I understand it with free-to-play because they need to make that cold hard cash somehow. I only want to pay a game (laughs) once, so punishing players for not reinvesting is a cardinal sin. P.S. Glad you two finally found another replicant, but why inverted axis is still unnatural. I guess, this is a good, I guess this is a good time to ask, Aldrin. Wait, do you guys do you guys uh, inverse your y axis? We both do. Yes, we do. Yeah. Oh wait, yeah, I think I was thinking the x axis. No, that's yeah. weird. No, y axis. We're get, not okay. monsters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I was going to say like if it's if it's a flight if it's a flight game if I'm in an X wing or something I I see the benefit of up is down and down is up, but. Uh, first, first person, yeah. your standard. Yeah, yeah. I see. I I don't look at it in terms of like tilting my whole mm-hmm. head. I think of it in terms of shifting my eyes. So pushing up to look up makes more sense to me than up and down. The funny thing that in asking this question of a lot of our guests is how people typically try to defend their their preference using some using something sure. like some example like that like oh imagine a stick coming out of the back of your head if you want to look up you'd push the stick yeah, yeah, down yeah. or or yeah like i just shift my eyes up and down to me that's sort of the most interesting thing about this question is how do people rationalize the choice that they make if there was ever a war between people who inverted their y axis and those that don't Jared and I are screwed because everyone plays standard. Until you get put into uh, yeah. planes or X-Wings, <laughs> yeah. then you guys are not screwed. Maybe that's why See, I really, really like You my guys should just and... be in the Air Force. Yeah, totally. Uh, Steve, do you want to kind of... Uh, we had another tweet that was kind of about the same thing from A. Goners. you want to take this? Um, just a little bit about his article that he linked. He, he linked an article about, about why some people use uh, inverted Y-axis. So this was just actually taken from his article. Which, uh, if you ever go to our Twitter, definitely check out uh, Agoner's thing because he he, this is actually a, a group of guys that run a blog, but they wrote a little article about inverting the y-axis, and yeah, they were talking about how some people rationalize it by thinking of themselves as the crosshairs. So when they press up, it, the crosshairs move up and down is down. the The thing I'm I continue to sense. be intrigued with is is it something that's that you're born with or is it something that you learn oh nature versus nurture that's yeah i don't know anyone's doing it like that study because like honestly who gives yeah. a shit but uh maybe <laughs> we should be the ones maybe we should um i don't know maybe steve we know a few psycho we know some you know, i wonder if there's like yeah, a, we know who to talk yeah to we know some psychology well, uh, you have a child so maybe you can just write and you know start experimenting <laughs> on him early and see, <laughs> yeah. see how messed up you can get him by do you suppose there's some kind of like left brain right thing thing I happening don't know, there? man i don't know it 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 definitely seems to be that Jared and I are in the minority, but I can't play the other way. You know, like I, I couldn't even, 
it's like if I tried to throw a ball with my left hand, you know, I couldn't, I can't do yeah. it. I don't know that I could teach myself to do it. I will say that when, when N64 playing Goldeneye, I, I inverted the C button so that pushing down to look up was You were like, you were a hardcore James Bond player if you were actually using the C buttons to look up and down. Yeah, you had to look up and down, man. <laughs> I was, it's funny because I was just talking about that game the other day and someone was uh, talking about looking up and down. I was like, you realize like, you had to use the C, you had to lift your hand from the center of the controller over to the left side of the controller in order to look up and down. And he was like, oh yeah, I guess you, you remember <laughs> the game different than it was, you know? Yeah, when I went back and played that re-release on Wii, uh, that was a nightmare trying to figure out those controls again. That was terrible. <laughs> now, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the the meat of Chester Copperpot's message and not just the um, <laughs> not just the y-axis part of the comment. Um, but he says that he doesn't feel comfortable paying for microtransactions in a game that he's already paid for once. Um, sure. I understand that sentiment. But I think there are situations where I am comfortable engaging with a video game's microtransactions, be it loot boxes or just straight up microtransactions, under certain Mm -hmm. circumstances. Uh, So I I know we talked a lot about Overwatch in that that episode, but I'll bring it up again. Because Overwatch, the the developer, Blizzard, has said that they're not going to charge for DLC for that game. So for me, that was a game that I paid 60 bucks for. I feel like I got my 60 bucks worth out of it. And I wanted to continue to support the development of that game, knowing that I wasn't going to be asked for money in any other capacity. So in that case, mm-hmm. I felt comfortable saying like, okay, I'll give you 10 bucks for the, you know, whatever, the Christmas event loot boxes knowing that that money will be going towards you guys developing more levels and more characters that you're going to be giving to me quote unquote for free. Obviously they're, they're, Mm -hmm. they're taking that money that you've spent on those, you know, those optional transactions for those aesthetic items and then putting that towards the development of future content. But um, in, in cases like that where I feel like I was making an informed decision and I understood, you know, I, I was paying them for, continuing to support that game and i in that in that scenario i I, i'm comfortable with that but how do how do you guys feel about that i think i agree with you uh in terms of overwatching uh, as the example because the stuff that you pay for microtransaction wise in overwatch aren't game breaking or uh they don't give you any kind of advantage would you say they're they're not a game breaking feature whoa (laughs) yeah (laughs) is is uh is that the podcast (laughs) that i'm on uh yeah oh i just i just realized that um but uh, but no, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, paying it, it's it's my choice to make if I want to get Grillmaster 76 or the opportunity to do so. But having him doesn't change my experience other than I have like braggy points. Um, and the fact that they they continue to maintain their servers, they're constantly updating the game so that it's fair. The fact that you, we've gotten four free characters in the last year, that maps continue to be expanded upon that. Uh, additional game features keep coming in like the fact that the game continues to evolve in that way for a flat fee of 60 or even in the case of pc 40 dollars um i think you're getting so much more than what your money is worth that overwatch is an example of how to do microtransactions correctly 
Whereas there are other games that I can't cite a specific example right now, but if you have to pay to win, then that yeah, feels unfair. That's I feel like those trouble. games are in the minority because I also can't think of a like people tend to you know get super loud and uproarious about microtransactions for in a in a sixty dollar game or whatever. But I can't well, like, really for think example, of. I guess like I was gonna say like doesn't Destiny have a thing where like if I pay twenty bucks for a season pass, it unlocks a certain type of gun or a certain type of armor that no one else can get. Um, they had some pre-order stuff for Destiny 2. Beyond that, I'm not sure what the other sort of advantages of that were. But Destiny also has microtransactions in it. You can buy silver. You can right. buy it in the first game, and um, they've carried that over to Destiny 2, where you can get random chances at aesthetic stuff. Like, have you noticed that that uh, Overwatch only allows you to pay for individual loot boxes, but never pay, like, say, 20 bucks to get 200 coins? Yeah. Like, to me, that that is the correct way to go about doing that because you still have to earn those coins to you know buy the ones that you want to pick and choose so you still feel like you have to earn that right as opposed to just winning it yeah you're not just like buying into their currency ecosystem or whatever right which i appreciate because when 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 you start having to convert your actual dollars into in-game money it just seems slimy to me we're starting to run a little bit long so i'll go ahead and uh wrap this up. If you have any questions or comments about hardware peripherals or any of our previous topics, you can always send your emails to us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Definitely go there and do that. Um, lots of great discussions. And also we have been updating it with fun game recommendations and links to articles about these topics. So if you enjoy what we're talking I'm not about. ready to stop this discussion. I want to talk about, I want more <laughs> maracas in no, video God games. Damn it, wanna, we got to uh, wrap it up. <laughs> bring back Samba no. de Amigo. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for this episode. I could see that being a Switch game. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, now I'm like awkwardly forced to try to wrap this up. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> yeah, I've never had an awkward moment on here. But before before we do get out of here, I want to thank Aldrin for taking the time to join us for this conversation. Aldrin, thank you so much. Yeah, you guys, this has yeah, been man, really, it's been really fun. Uh, I appreciate, oh, for it. appreciate sure, it, man. Um, where we can people, you. where can people find your work? How can they keep up with you? Well, uh, you can listen to my podcast. It's called Aldrin Tendo Power. We try to put out every friday or saturday depending on when my team can do so uh we're on twitter at aldrin tendo uh you can follow me on twitter at a cornejo that's also on instagram and uh you know watch watch american dad monday nights on tbs so i can keep working i love american (laughs) dad i fully endorse what you just said go watch it (laughs) ricky Spanish. spanish Uh, as a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to us so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. Lastly, I want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. It's amazing, the support that we've had, and Jared and I both really, really appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Aldrin. What a great sign-off. <laughs>